Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, fans, you know the NBA and college basketball are back, and the NFL playoffs are really right around the corner now. So, with all these sports going on, there are plenty of bets to lock in. So, if you're thinking about picking, say, the Lakers to repeat their NBA championship, or maybe somebody to upset Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs, you need to go to betonline.ag. From game spreads and totals, teams, players, coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there is always the online casino, of course, as well. It never closes. So go ahead, head to BetOnline.ag today. Take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's BetOnline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Hey folks, Mike and Mark again with you. And before we introduce our guest today, we want to thank you for all of your support. You know, with your help, we've done more than 30 podcasts to date, a wide variety of guests, and you've been fantastic with your feedback. So please keep supporting us and let us know when you get a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you download us from, that's fine. And thanks again for subscribing. Keep spreading the word. We love having you along for the ride. Well, on this episode, we're going to sharpen our knowledge of today's game. We're joined by former big league pitcher and color uh, television analyst for the Texas Rangers, C.J. Nitkowski. And Mark, this guy has seen a lot. You know, this is a top draft pick, played all over the country and the world, does a fantastic job now of melding both the old school baseball with the new school analytics. Uh, what a journey C.J. has had and, and diving into all these aspects. And Mike, as you mentioned, that first round pick, his ascension to the big leagues was very, very quick. So um, it's interesting being around CJ, not as a teammate, uh, but on the broadcasting side. He has great perspective, and I can't wait to hear all of his stories. CJ, we so appreciate you joining us. Ten years in the big leagues, eight different teams. You play all around the world. Probably the toughest question we ask is right out of the gate, and that is if you could try to distill what was a wonderful career down to what you feel is your single most memorable moment on the field. Well, first of all, Mike, we all know you're lying when you say wonderful. It was lengthy. There was a lot going on. I don't know if my wife would even agree if it was wonderful or not. To be honest. It was fun. We had a really good time. Um, it's a difficult thing to do, but I think for me, when I go back and, and think about that very first win, I didn't win that many games, uh, but the first one in my rookie year uh, was just a really cool moment. It was in Philadelphia. I grew up in the Northeast of New York, so just a couple of hours away, so I had tons of friends and family there. Uh, it was on, I believe it was, I can't remember if it was Monday or Wednesday night baseball, but it was the ESPN a nationally televised game in 1995. Uh, the Philadelphia Phillies had the best record in baseball at the time. I was pitching for the Reds uh, and I went up against Kurt Schilling and I beat him one nothing. And it was just a really fun, cool moment for me to share. First of all, I get that first win, but then to be able to share it with everybody and you know, thinking about, you know, some of the names that were in the lineup at the time, uh, Darren Dalton and Jim Heisenreich and, and Lenny Dykstra. I mean, there were some, some cool names that just a year ago was in college. I mean, I was drafted in 94 and here I was now in June of 95 uh, chasing after my, my very first win. These are guys I was playing on with video games. You know, and all of a sudden now I'm going up against them. And it was just, it was just a really cool moment. My uh, girlfriend, now wife was there. Uh, and as I mentioned, of course, my parents and everybody else, but that, that was kind of a, a fun one for me. I threw seven shutout innings, shilling threw a ball away on a pickoff. That was the only run we scored <laughs> in the game uh, and ended up winning it uh, one, nothing and barely Jeff Brantley, who we all know 
closed it out the final two innings and it was uh, it was touch and go there for a little while. Um, but that's probably the moment, the one that sticks out that first of all, you feel like you kind of arrived. Uh, but then also just, I mean, just a really cool memory, not just for me, but for everybody who was involved in my, my friends and family group. CJ, I, I love hearing the names, especially Jim Eisenreich. One of the guys, <laughs> sneaky, sneaky guy that uh, could absolutely rake. And, mm-hmm. and that's the reason why uh, I, I fell in love with him, the, the way he was swinging. Yeah. Um, you said seven innings, uh, obviously not on a pitch count, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not doing pitch counts back then. <laughs> um what was your mentality going into it? And and the other question I have uh, after that mentality part was, uh, where were you when Brantley finished off the game? Because I think that's kind of the interesting aspect. And how did you celebrate? Yeah. So first of all, I think with, uh, you know, just the idea of preparation was one of the issues that I ran into just a little bit. My rookie year was worrying about scouting reports a little bit too much. Like they were helpful and they certainly weren't what they are in today's game. Uh, but it's just nothing has changed, right? Where people end up going back to make sure you're pitching your game. And I think was part of it. Um, and so the preparation for me was having at least a little bit of an understanding, but I really relied heavily on the catchers that I had, especially as a rookie, because I was so clueless as the far as far as what was going on. So we had Damon Berryhill and Benito Santiago were our catchers, uh, <laughs> if you can believe that, uh, in uh, in Cincinnati at the time. And so more relying heavily on them. And pitch counts weren't a thing. I mean, it's just one of those deals that uh, we didn't think about it. Uh, you know, coming again out of college not that long ago was nothing to throw 130 or 140 pitches. Uh, in a game. So if anything, I probably felt like I could have stayed out there um, longer, but at the same time, I was also looking for that first win. So <laughs> I wouldn't mind somebody coming and uh, maybe rescuing me and make sure we could lock it down. I do remember, uh, you know, as far as the end of the game, um, yeah, I wasn't a, like a real emotional guy. Like, of course I wanted to win and I was excited, but you probably would never see it on the outside. Uh, but there were a couple of base runners on it. I remember Hal Morris walking by me going, yeah, you might not want to watch this. <laughs> he actually <laughs> thought that it was going to go in the other direction. Like it wasn't looking like you're going to get your first W. And I was up uh, in the clubhouse. He's like, yeah, you probably, you might, you might want to look away because I was up there like, you know, get nice. And I was just like, I, it was, I think it was my fourth start. And I pitched a couple of decent games that hadn't gotten a win yet. And those things still matter. They mattered then. I think they, they still matter now. Even if you pitch well, you want those W's. Um, so I was kind of sitting on the edge of my seat. Um, from the clubhouse and then eventually worked my way down for uh, the old school handshakes and high fives after the win. So the win was 1995. As you mentioned, you did, it was a meteoric ascent for you, uh, drafted in the first round by the Reds in 1994. Ninth overall pick, by the way, highest draft pick uh, that I'm aware of ever out of St. John's. Got him. Good on you right there. <laughs> Tricked him. You're going to peak. I used to, I used to tell people that if you're going to peak, peak like on draft day, because that's how I kind of look at my career. But now I start to realize maybe like, you know, age 25, 26 is probably a good time to peak. But if you're going to pick, you know, if you're going to peak like a week before the draft, it's not a bad time either. Oh, if we only all could live by the value of 2020 hindsight and retrospect, right? Hey, go back though to when you did get the call. I mean, as we said, you, you shot through the minors. Maybe it wasn't a shock to you, but it's still a very exciting moment when you're told you're going to the big leagues. Who told you? What's the story behind it? And who'd you talk to right away? So it was a little bit of a shock to me, quite honestly. Um, I had made three starts. I started the year in double A um, and going even back to the year before that, the draft, Jim Bowden was the one who drafted me and he put me right in double A at a college. And I didn't think that was a big deal or I didn't think much of it because I really didn't understand how the minor league system worked, quite honestly. Um, so I started my career in double A and then started the very next year. It was the strike year in 94, started the next year in double A and then got called up. Um, the triple A. And so this was kind of my, some of my first exposure to having guys that have been in the big leagues as teammates. Like I still thought that was really cool. 
right? Even if it was a guy that had like a month in, I was like, Oh my gosh, this guy's been in the big leagues. And they were probably like, you need to shut up. You're 22 years old in triple a and probably getting ready to pass me. And so I'm not interested in you being excited about me uh, being on your team. But that was kind of my triple a experience on the short term. I'd only made three starts uh, in triple a prior to getting called up and we we're sitting out in the old Indianapolis stadium. Um, uh, taking uh, batting practice. So I'm just out in left field and, and shagging. And I was standing next to Roger Salkeld, who kind of was one of those guys for me. He had a little bit of service time. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And all of a sudden someone yells out and says, Hey, Bombi wants to talk to you in the office. And that was Mark Bombard, uh, my AAA manager. I was like, that's weird. And Roger looks at me and goes, oh, you're probably going to the big leagues. I'm like, that's ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like I just got here. I've only made three starts. And so I get, and I walk into his office and he's got an old school phone in his hand and he looks at, he goes, there's one of these, he puts the phone like this. He goes, you're going up big lakes. Like he was super, super excited. And again, not really a lot of emotion for me on the outside. I almost felt like he wasn't more excited than I was, but on the outside, it looked like he was more excited than I was. He was really, really pumped for me. He's such a genuine good guy. And you just, I could still see it clear as day, right? I mean, that's what 25 years ago. And I could still see his face like full of expression, holding that, you know, Manila phone that, you know, the old school desk phones that had like four different lines. And, um, he was just, he was just really excited and, and let me know. And I was excited as well. And as soon as I could get to a landline, cause I didn't have a cell phone then, uh, started making those phone calls to, to my friends and family. CJ, uh, take us into, uh, the first appearance. Uh, you, you get into this locker room. I always love hearing the reaction of when you walk into a major league a locker room and you see your Jersey for the first time. Do you remember that moment? Absolutely. Isn't that amazing how we all kind of share that? That yeah. is such a cool thing that you don't think about ahead of time. And then until after it happens. And then we get to this part in our lives and we're like, Oh yeah, we all had that same experience. So that was at old riverfront stadium. Uh, I was the first person there. I was probably about 10 hours too early to get to the clubhouse, um, <laughs> but I was excited. And so I walk in and I look to my right and remember again, this is 1995. So there, I, there was no big league spring training. Mm-hmm. So I didn't go to big league spring training as like the, their first round pick from the year before I hadn't been around any of the big league guys hadn't been around any of the big league staff because it didn't exist that year. And so this was my first real taste of all of it. And so I walk into the club bus and I look to my right and it was Old Riverfront Stadium. They had the really long clubhouses that kind of almost went to the shape of the stadium. And my locker was all the way down at the other end. And sure enough, I saw it. It said at 49 Nikowski. And again, you could still, I could still see that clear as day. They didn't ask me what number I wanted or any of that kind of stuff, but it was cool for me because I was a Ron Guidry fan growing up, one of the Yankees that I really loved. And so they give me not on purpose, but they give me um, Ron Guidry's number. And then Bernie Stowe, the clubhouse manager, he said, Oh, by the way, yeah, we haven't given this number out to anybody since Rob Dibble had it, which I thought was some, <laughs> some pretty big shoes to fill. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, you're a, a nasty boy. You're uh, a nasty boy. I, I wish, but I, I was, I, I gave my best effort. I'll say that, but yeah, it was cool. There was nobody else in there and I could still see it uh, clear as day. Uh, seeing that Jersey hanging up and it was a really cool moment. Barry Larkin, Hal Morris, um, to name a few, uh, oh, yeah. you, you walk into this locker room and sometimes that's a little daunting as well. You almost feel, and I remember this, I feel like, uh, you know, someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, Hey man, we're just kidding. I mean, yeah. it's time to, it's time to leave. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that is something that's interesting in itself. Did someone uh, really take you under their wing and and, and really uh, mentor you? And and how did that stick out for you? So an amazing group. Deion Sanders was on that team um, as well. Reggie Sanders, Ron Gann. I mentioned Jeff Brantley. Like there was a ton of veterans and it was a first place team. I got called up because Jose Rio went on the, on the DL. 
and they just needed a starter kind of to fill in. So there was a ton of guys. Jose treated me really well. I would say probably John Smiley was the guy uh, that kept an eye on me to make sure I didn't do any of the dumb things that every rookie does when they first walk in. Uh, Brett Boone was on that club um, as well. I do remember being reprimanded once by Jeff Brantley uh, for kind of jumping in on a joke. The guys were making fun of Jerome Walton for something, and I kind of chimed in. He looked at me and gave me that dad look like, <laughs> it's not for you to be having this joke. Like, like he almost screamed at me um, in front of everybody. And you learned a little things and, and kind of what's appropriate um, and what's not. But I will tell you what was so cool about JB because he was also good about kind of showing me the ropes. So he would have a moment like that where maybe I was reprimanded for doing something. But then I also remember we get to Colorado and remember this is when the minimum was 109, right? It wasn't, yeah. you know, what the money wasn't flowing like it was now as much. I mean, listen, it's a good salary, but it's not what we usually see and or don't see these days. And he comes batting practice in Colorado and puts 50 bucks in my back pocket. Uh, my, my baseball fans, like we're stretching. And he puts $50 in my back pocket and he goes, give this to the clubby. Uh, we had the clubbies do the bucket here, you know, in the big leagues. And I, and I love shagging. So that was music to my ears. Cause I was one of those dummies when I was younger that would run around and pretend I was the big league outfielder uh, when I was sitting there, um, you know, trying to shag and do all that other fun stuff. CJ, it, it, interesting. Cause you said you go on your, on your first road trip, uh, put in perspective, uh, the meal money packet. Cause I don't yeah. think we talk about this a lot, but coming from the minor leagues and, and going to the big leagues, that meal money packet, that first one <laughs> is pretty special. It's a good one. And I had a teammate want to take it from me. So, um, and I didn't really, again, I'm still learning the ropes here. And remember the reds were one of the last teams, probably the last team we actually flew commercial on the way out to the beginning of the trip. You can believe that. Wow. Uh, we, we, you know, it was March shot reds. Like they were known for being really cheap. And so we had like the back half of the plane. Um, but I do remember, so we landed, uh, in, I think it was in Houston where we went first and we got in late and you know, the whole deal. Right. So I get on the bus. I'm like, where do I sit? And as Mike Jackson walks by me, he goes, Hey, give me your meal money. And that was because he just got crushed on a plane in cards. <laughs> like no money. I thought it was serious. I'm like scared to death. You know, he's yeah. looking at me, the only rookie on the team, give me your meal money. Cause he probably just lost like a grand playing cards uh, on the plane. But it, no, it was, it was, it was cool. I mean, no doubt, man, the idea of getting that packet of cash and that never gets old. And I know it's changed a little bit with the way the guys have gotten the meal money knocked down to like 30 bucks a day uh, in exchange for not paying clubhouse dues is kind of a part of the, the CBA right now. But yeah, it was fun, man. It was, it was like free money, free cash uh, to have a little bit of fun with. And, and rarely were you actually using that money to buy a meal. Well, one thing about C.J. Nutkowski, uh, early on anyway, you're like the Rolling Stone, man. You didn't want to gather any moss. Three games in AAA, you go to the big leagues, nine games with the Reds. They, then all of a sudden you're traded, if memory serves, to Detroit. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine it's kind of topsy-turvy. We've always heard from players how emotionally challenging it is on a guy and how tough it can be, especially on a young player, to get flipped. What do you remember about that experience? Well, so I got sent down first and had a couple more starts in AAA before I had gotten traded. Um, and I, that was the worst call when Davey Johnson called me, and I kind of knew it was coming. Uh, we were in San Diego. Uh, I, blew, I think I blew a four- or five-run lead. Uh, Ray Holbert hit a grand slam off me. Oh my. And now we're like Facebook friends. I'm like, eh, you know, it's still a rough memory. And he knows it too. <laughs> he only had a couple of home runs in his career, uh, but he hits a grand slam off me. And I was based on the next flight to Indianapolis from San Diego. Um, so you go through that process, right? So the first time, as we know, you get to the big leagues and if there's some struggles in there, it's the biggest failures you've ever had on the biggest stage in your life, right? At that point. Mm -hmm. And if you're not careful and I wasn't, a lot of negative thoughts can start seeping in. I mean, I literally, when I got sent down, I was like, well, okay, I guess that's it. 
Like I have my shot. Like I'm completely clueless, right? I have no idea. And my confidence is crushed. I had pitched two really bad games when I got back to AAA and Mark Bombard, the manager, same guy was excited about setting me up, called me in his office. And he's like, what's wrong with you? And I was very honest with him. I said, Skip, my, my confidence is shot right now. And then sure enough, I was traded like a few, a few days later. So I don't know if he told Jim Bowden that or not, but going through all those emotions, Mike, that you're talking about were real. And if, I'm sure with all the guys that you've had on, and certainly Sweeney can speak to this, but if you think about what did your first full year in pro ball look like, I imagine mine will probably rival most, most, you know, no spring training because we got kicked out of spring training because we wouldn't cross the picket line. Uh, then I start the year in double A, go to triple A, get called up to the big leagues, back to triple A, and then traded to Detroit. That was my first full year in baseball. Four different places that I lived. I paid August 1995 rent in three cities. You know, that's my first year in baseball. And so I go over to Detroit. So I told you all the guys that were on that team in Cincinnati. It was a team that it was just kind of a slick team. A lot of pros, guys were well-dressed. It, you know, it just, it felt like a big deal, right? I go to Detroit and I'm traded for David Wells. And they just lost like one of their favorite guys in the clubhouse. Right? And they were going through a transition where they were getting rid of a lot of the older guys and they were getting a little bit younger. So now I walk into this Detroit clubhouse. I got this huge red bag. I do not know a single person in this clubhouse. My confidence is shocked. because I, 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 My last couple of starts in the big leagues went bad. My last couple of AAA went bad. And I walk in and Kirk Gibson is in there. Lou Whitaker is in there. Alan Trammell is in there. Mike Henneman is on this team. And it was either you were really old or you were really young. There was like no in between. It was either because they had a lot of rookies there, which we didn't have in Cincinnati. And they had a lot of old crusty veterans. I walk in with this huge red bag, middle of the clubhouse, old Tiger Stadium. And a clubhouse kid comes up to me and he goes, uh, yeah, we don't have any lockers right now. Like any empty lockers. So I'm like, what? I, so I got dressed in the middle of the clubhouse for the first day of like workouts. It was so embarrassing. I was completely lost. And eventually they squeezed me in between. So Gibby had his locker, Tram had his, and there was like this half locker in between that they shared to put their clothes in. They emptied that out to put me in there and Gibby. And I'm like, this is Kirk Gibson. Like, I'm like everybody else, man. Like the highlight, the Dodgers, like this is the guy, right? I can't believe he's on my team. And he is screaming at the top of his lungs, pissed off that he has to empty that locker. So that a kid who looks young enough to be his son, he says, uh, has to take the locker next to him. It, yes. was it was a ridiculous first year. Slammed right in the middle of uh, oh. two icons in yeah. uh, Detroit in a half Tigers. locker. It wasn't even a full-size locker. CJ, you could, you could write a, a book on your first year yeah. uh, alone, I, I would say. Um, interesting that uh, we always dive into the aspect of getting traded. And yeah. uh, that is a, a huge adjustment, obviously, in your first year. But you get traded uh, to the Houston Astros. Kind of a big deal, but... Uh, you're with Brad Osmus, yeah. and then uh, turn it around. You get traded back to Detroit with Brad Osmus as well. Uh, was there a connection there, and how how that all <laughs> work for you mentally? So that was the Randy Smith, Tal Smith years, right? So Tal Smith, of course, was the president of the Astros uh, for a long time. Randy Smith was our general manager uh, in Detroit, so the connection was there, and they just liked doing big trades, right? It wasn't like me and Brad and two other guys. I think it was like nine the first time. Darrell Ward, Trevor Miller, Jose Lima, like these were big trades in the sense of how many people actually went um, and then getting traded back. So I was, you know, I was kind of excited when I got traded to Houston the first time. I wasn't pitching that well just yet uh, in Detroit. And it was a good experience for me when Jerry Hunsinger, uh, the general manager of the Astros at the time, uh, called me in January 99. I wasn't as excited uh, to go back to Detroit. I actually liked Houston. I just bought a house 
couple of months prior to that, just got married oh, two weeks prior to that. And uh, he's like, Oh, you're getting traded. And you know, you, you go through this one, right? When you get traded, and I feel like this happened the first time with Jim Bowden and the same thing with Jerry, you're just like waiting and waiting and waiting for them to tell you where, right? They're going on about, Hey, we really enjoyed having you. And here's where the team is and all this other blah, blah, blah. I'm like, where, where am I going? And he said, Detroit, my heart just kind of sunk. I was like, I was, there was a part of me that kind of liked the idea of the new adventure. Like, Oh, where's the new place going to be? And it was actually going back to Detroit, which is fine. And I enjoyed my, my next three years there. Uh, afterwards, but it's a lot, man. I just, I kind of got used to it though. I never have sat in one place. I think the three years in Detroit was my max. I joke around that the fourth year I had with the Rangers, which was two years ago, I've been there five years now calling games for them. That's the, the fourth year was the longest I've had any job in my life. And CJ, uh, you know what, uh, perspective and you, and you gave relevance to it uh, when you were with the Reds and who took you under their wing. Uh, I love talking about teammates because that's mm-hmm. how our identity is really built. Yeah. Um, any teammates stick out in your mind uh, along those travels and even through trades that stick out that were really meaningful for you? Tons, man. And even if it was guys that were just for a moment, right? Something that you either picked up on or they left a really good impression on you, uh, maybe did something that was even a little bit life-changing. I'll give you one that's super small. When I was in Houston, when I was in Cincinnati, Tim Pugh, as an example, Tim Pugh pitched for a little bit in the big leagues. And he was having a conversation one time with John Smiley and me being young and dumb and uh, full of energy. I kind of jumped in their conversation and started talking, but I talked right over him and he turned and he aired me out for talking over him. And it's just, it's always stuck with me. Yeah. So I feel like, and not that I'm great at not talking over everybody all the time, but it's, a, it's one of those little life lessons, like a silly one. I'm like, be a little careful and make sure you're not interrupting people because Tim Pugh let me know how that felt for him, right? So that's like a really small one. And then I think about, you know, favorites that I've had. Jose Lima's up there. We were in that trade and uh, he came back to Detroit. So we spent a pretty good amount of time together over the years and, and God rest his soul. I don't know if I've had any more fun with any teammate. And a guy that I always, when I think about him, something I learned from watching him, and I don't know if I could ever replicate, but for those that remember Jose Lima, he, I don't know if anybody had more fun playing baseball than he did. Yeah. And in the beginning, he was terrible, like all of us. in that Detroit rotation, like 95, 96, he was as bad as all of us. And he never acted like he, he didn't care if he pitched bad. He could have three horrific games in a row and give up 20 runs over that time. If the next game went well, he was having a party like he was a Cy Young Award winner. I mean, it was amazing. And I couldn't do that. I was like, I can't do that because I'm a guy that focuses on the negative too much. And he doesn't. It's over when it's over. And when the positive comes, it's going to be a party. And I was like, gosh, that was something I've always envied about him and tried to replicate my own little version if I could, but not to be too hard on myself when, uh, when things went bad. Um, and he was just, he was just a fun teammate to be around, but there's, I think there's lots of guys like that over the years, whether you spent a lot of time with them or a little time with them, maybe you watch their example of the way that they did things and managers too. I counted at the end. I ended up having 40 managers when it was all said and done all around the world. And, uh, you know, you just pick up a little bit of something different from everybody. And I will say that when you're going through it, you're like, gosh, I'm traded again. I'm moving again. I'm going to another spot. But then what I realized now at this point in my life is that all of those experiences from so many different people that experience the game a different way has helped me a ton in broadcasting. A ton. And I would have never thought about it. See, and at the top, I said you had a wonderful career and you're looking at it through the prism of a frustrated <laughs> baseball player who thinks they should have played 20 years at 40 million an hour. And I'm telling you, from the prism of a fan and someone who appreciates how hard you guys have to work to get where you are, uh, it was a wonderful career because to play globally and to be a broadcaster and to stay in a game is a big darn deal. What got you 
that opportunity to play in Asia. And that's not an easy decision, I know, for a lot of guys because there are things to consider. You're giving up playing in the States. Does that dash the dream of staying there? What mm-hmm. went through your mind? How'd you end up deciding to go uh, to play first in Japan, I believe, and then yep. in Korea? Yeah, I got really lucky. So I actually was offered an opportunity to go to Japan in 2003. And I turned it down. And a lot of times they say, if you turn it down once, you're not going to come back and ask again because you know, they just don't want to go through the process of guys that if they don't want to do it, then they don't want to do it. And I would finished mm-hmm. the season with the Rangers and threw the ball pretty well. And the money was about even all I had to do. And the Rangers wanted to sign me back. All I had to do was make the team. And because of my service time, I would have been making about the same money. So we, we put a decent amount of thought into it. We want to go to Japan uh, or do we want to go to the Rangers? And at that point, I think I was 29 or 30. And so I felt like I still had some baseball left in me. And I, and exactly what you said, Mike, because the old adage was back then, once you go over to Asia, that's it. You're not coming back. That's not the case anymore. As we've seen a lot of great stories of guys that have gone over there, American players, or I guess, you know, foreign players will call them non-Japanese players that have gone over there and then come back to the States, which has been a good thing. But during that process, I got a phone call from, from Tommy Lasorda. Right. And so he was involved with this guy, AC with the Dodgers that was involved in trying to get me over to Asia. So Tommy calls me. I never talked to him before, but I had been around long enough at this point in my life where not that I wasn't impressed that it was time with Lasorda, but I also wasn't like blown away. Like, Holy cow. You know what I mean? Like I had some, you know, a little bit of dirt in my, my cleat. So it wasn't, um, maybe not that it wasn't impressed. I want to be careful how I say this, but you know, I just wasn't like a, a fan out of nowhere. And so I'm talking to this guy, AC he goes, Hey, I'm, I got somebody on the phone that wants to talk to you. I'm like, okay. And it's Tommy. And Tommy goes, hey, CJ. He's like, listen, this is what he says. This is the way he wants to get me to go to Japan. He goes, you've been kicking around long enough. He's like, you need to take this deal. <laughs> he goes, you got to stop screwing around. It's not happening for you here. Take this deal and go to Japan. I was like, oh, okay, that's really, that was really encouraging. <laughs> thanks, for the, thanks for the pep talk. Um, but I ended up turning it down. And then two years later, uh, I guess three years later, in 2006, I spent the whole year in Indianapolis, AAA with the Pirates. I had a team call during the middle of the year and the Pirates wouldn't let me go. It was so wow. frustrating because they were this team was uh, Hiroshima. They didn't have a lot of money. They were offering fifty grand for me, and the Pirates wouldn't take it. I'm like, really? I'm like, you know, I'm not going to the big leagues. Like, no matter what happens, because you guys at that point weren't playing well. Luckily, that next at the end of the off season or when the off season started, an old pitching coach of mine by the name of Lee Tunnel was helping the Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks get players. He called me uh, and said, do you want to go? And I was like, absolutely. I didn't think twice about it at that point. After passing up on it once already and then spending a whole year in AAA a couple years later, it was a no-brainer to go. You take that opportunity, CJ, and and I think it's interesting. uh, Culturally, there's challenges, but also uh, you see the differences between the leagues. Uh, What stuck out to you uh, opening day when it comes down to it? I think that is something that is really exciting here in the States. What was it like in Japan when you first took on that challenge? Everything is festive there. They do, they do that stuff really, really cool. There's a lot of flowers involved. Uh, there's like <laughs> sometimes weird fancy fruit. There's people dancing on the field. And that doesn't even mean opening day. It could be something in the middle of the season. Like they do the <laughs> celebrations really, really well. Culturally, and I've always told guys that have asked me about going over there because once I first came back and was still hanging and I get a lot of people reach out. How do I get there? I want to get there. Guys know there's pretty decent money to be made. And if they realize that there's not happening for them in the States, uh, they want to go. I always tell people, you got to go over with an open mind. Like I intentionally did not watch Mr. Baseball, uh, you know, the, uh, the movie about uh, for Tom Selleck playing over there in Japan, uh, just because I wanted to make sure I had my own kind of, I didn't want any preconceived notions going over there. Just want to be completely open-minded. And I think that's the way that you have to do it. And you have to go over there realizing it's not the big leagues uh, in the sense of how you get treated. You're going to carry your own bag. There's going to be some things that are going to be different, both in Korea and Japan. And if you go over with that mindset, 
uh, you'll enjoy it. If you go over there expecting it to be the big leagues, you'll be miserable, right? There's, there's, a, there's a line in there somewhere. I will say the difference in competition between the two was something that stuck out. Korea is a smaller country. They haven't been playing baseball as long, um, but they have a little bit of an edge to them. And I think we've seen some of it with some of the players that have come over that's different from Japan. And, and we're starting to see it now, but I think eventually they catch up. The Japanese baseball product is further along because of what they do. And it is a little bit of a different style of game, but there was something that I liked about the Korean uh, way that they played baseball, a little bit of an edge to them. Uh, lots of bat flips, as we know that happen, yeah. uh, in Korea, they're not afraid. Um, but in and more outdoor stadiums, I think they only have one dome. They didn't have any when I was there grass infields, which they don't have very many of in Japan, little things like that. I love them both. They were tremendous experiences for both me and my family. My kids went to school in Japan for a little while. Like those are the kind of things that are gifts that the game gives you that you're never thinking about. Um, but man, we had so much fun over there. It was, it was a blast. CJ, I mean, culturally, the differences that you and Mark are talking about are extraordinary, but I would imagine, I mean, what a bubble, right? Because you're playing in the States. X percent of your players speak English or Spanish and English mm -hmm. with just a couple of Asian players. Now you go over there and you've got to find folks you can communicate with. How was that getting along in a clubhouse when it was really probably second nature to you here in the United States? It was good. I think like with anything, those guys, there's a there's also, I think, kind of an, an assumption about American players when you get there that you're going to be loud, that you're going to be obnoxious. Like I kind of got that impression from my Japanese teammates and it's on you to prove maybe a little bit otherwise that you appreciate being there, that you respect their version of the game and the way that they do things. And you're not going to come in and say, I'm only doing things the way that we do it in the States. Like, I think that's a big mistake. You're going to rub a lot of teammates the wrong way. As soon as they realize they can trust you. I think as soon as they realize you have an open mind and you respect them, you break down barriers really, really quickly. Uh, you become an expert at charades because you're talking with your hands all the time, right? <laughs> at the times that your uh, translator's not there, we did have, I think we had three translators when I was there. Uh, at one point, we did have seven foreigners, and you can only have four that are active at a time when I was there. Um, so we did that. So there was times you had to go to the Meyer Lakes, which was a whole nother experience. And it didn't take much. I played for the great Sadaharo uh, in Japan, 868 home runs was my manager. And uh, he had very short patience. So it was, yeah. it all it took was the one hit he didn't like that you allowed and you were on your way to the Meyer Leagues. And that was a whole uh, new experience as well. But I still have teammates uh, from Japan and Korea that I keep in touch with. Again, another one of the great gifts of the game. Uh, but you break down those barriers uh, pretty quickly. I think as soon as you show them uh, that you respect them and their culture and the way that they play the game. How so was that? Uh, yeah, CJ, how was that in a sense of uh, knowing that um, you were one of uh, maybe two, maybe three? Is that is it three uh, uh, Americans that you can yeah. have on a, I, on a I think, club? I think they can go four active now, but and I haven't looked at the rules in a while. It used to be four active, and it could never be more than three pitchers or three hitters. Okay, so yeah, how yeah. did you how did you feel in that component? Because uh, re roles are reversed, right? And, and mm -hmm. it's it's one of those things that uh, you wonder um, how that role is going to be. Uh, did you did you take to it right away, or did it take some time? Well, we started with four, so there wasn't the competition of who's going to be in the minor leagues. But as we added a couple of guys along the way, you start to realize, um, all right, somebody can't be here no matter how well you're playing. Those are the rules. So it was different in the sense that it wasn't about your play. It could have just been like they needed something, they needed a different player at the time. Or like I said, if it was just one little thing that, that ticked somebody off that you had to go to the minor leagues, it wasn't as bad um, as it would be in the States. Cause first of all, your pay didn't change. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a little bit of a relief, right? The contract was guaranteed. You're making the same money, whether you're in the big leagues uh, or the minor leagues, the minor leagues are completely different over there. They only play about 80 games. It's just one level. 
Um, and if there wasn't a game that day, you were done by 12 o'clock and hanging out on the beach. So it wasn't all terrible, um, at least in the city that I was in, because it was a, a beach city. But it was, uh, I mean, the clubhouse and, and the facilities were definitely a, a pretty big step down. Um, but I will tell you this, you're forced to have basically the way it started out, you know, three other teammates that are foreigners with you. And I was fortunate to have three Americans the first time uh, in Japan. And so you have all guys that speak English, which is a big deal. And you all live in the same area and, you know, families come to visit. And so it becomes important that you all get along because, you know, you know how it is. Like you can have 25, 30 teammates. There's always going to be a couple of guys that you just don't gel with. Well, yep. if those happen to be the couple that are your teammates in Asia, that could be a problem. You, know, you could feel isolated really quickly. So I, I got lucky in the sense that I had really good teammates to make it work. I will tell you that in Korea, played in three, with three teams over there. Back then, it was only two foreigners. And I never had another American when I was there. I had a, I had a guy from Japan who was my teammate in Korea. I had a Dominican player. I had a guy from Australia. Uh, it just was never, and obviously an Australian obviously speaks you know, English. Uh, but I actually yep. never played with another American on my team in Korea. CJ, you go from the States to Asia, back to the States to wrap things up, and you get a chance also to appear in a movie about <laughs> Jackie Robinson. And I'm going to go back and hammer this because you tell me this isn't wonderful for a ride. I'm going to argue you down. <laughs> tell us about your experience uh, on the movie 42. Yeah, it was kind of wild. It was completely um, random. I was coaching my son's team as I was home. I was still trying to play, but I was hurt. I tore my rotator cuff at the end of my time in Korea. And so I was coaching my son's team. And one of my one of the kids on the team's mom had come up to me and she says, hey, I have a friend who was looking for former players to help cast to be in the background of a movie that they're shooting in Chattanooga. And I'm living in Atlanta. Chattanooga is just a couple hours away. And, uh, she says, do you mind if I give her your name? I say, that's fine. So I get, this woman gets in touch with me and she said, we just need guys to, you know, stay in the outfield, be in the infield and look like, you know, normal major league or professional players. And so I said, yeah, no problem. And then so, so I agree to do it. And then I meet kind of the next level of what I've learned about this situation, the next level of casting director. It's kind of like you have all your extras, which how I was cast. I go to the next one and she says, you know what? She goes, what do you think about maybe reading for a role? And I said, well, you know, I'm not an actor or anything. I have no idea what you're talking about. I know how to read, but I don't know what reading for a role or what that looks like. She was, yeah, I think we're going to have you read for a while. I'm going to give you four different characters that just have one or two lines. And then I'm going to put you in front of the main casting director and have you read for her. I'm like, all right, again, completely clueless. I don't know anything about this process. And I have to go to this office in Atlanta to go read for this woman named Jackie Birch, who did a lot of really popular cast, a lot of really popular uh, movies throughout the 80s uh, and 90s. And so I walk in. And now it's like, just like you've probably seen before, there's like three people sitting at a table. You have to stand in front of them and you have to read this line. And I'm like, all right. And so I, I you know, I kind of read the script or whatever and I read my line and now like, all right, I want to do it again. Now do it this way. And you know, the director was there and he's like, oh, I'm going to give you this dirty look or I'm going to come back at you this. Now I want you to read it again. And it was all, you know, it was kind of fun and it was strange. And in the lobby, when I walked in, like there's all these other actors there that are like trying to get this role. And I come in like, Hey, what the heck's going on here? Like, how does this work? You know? And obviously nobody there wants to help me because they all want the role. Um, <laughs> and so I leave and uh, you know, I went in there like completely like, ah, whatever, this is interesting. And, uh, but I leave there and I all of a sudden like competitive juices started taking over. And I was like, Oh, I, I want this. I realize I want this right now. And so I get a call and they say, Hey, they want you to come in again uh, and read and read again. Right. So now I'm all the way in. Now I think I'm like Joe actor and I'm like getting great. I got, now I got to nail it. Right. I'm down to like the final two. And so I go read again. A couple of days later, I get a call from the original woman who reached out to me about being a background player. And she's like, Hey, it's down to you and one other guy. I'm like, Oh, okay, great. 
calls me again the other day. She goes, you got it. I'm like, Oh, cool. Thanks. That sounds fun. She's like, why are you not jumping up and down right now and screaming? She's like, you just landed a line in a major motion picture with Chadwick Boseman. Um, and, um, Oh gosh, why am I drawing a blank? Uh, the guy that played branch Ricky, uh, from star Wars, Harrison Ford. Yep. She's like, why are you not going crazy right now? I was like, I don't really know how any of this works to be honest with you. Um, so, <laughs> so I ended up uh, getting the line. It was fun. And then I'm all into it. Like, Oh, you're going to work for one day. I'm like one day. That's it. And uh, so I go up there and I stayed for 13 days. If you can believe that, that's how long it took him to shoot my one line that I had uh, in this movie, but it was cool. It was, it was so much fun. Um, and just one of those things that you just, you're like, Oh wow. Okay. I wasn't expecting to do this. Uh, thanks baseball. You know? <laughs> so what, so, so what was the one line? What was the scene? Uh, so know it, but yeah, everybody it was a little bit embarrassing. I'll be honest with you. So I ended up, cause I ended up facing Jackie three times in this, but there was, you know, other times there wasn't lines. Like I knock him down a couple of times and he ends up getting a base hit later. But in one of the at bats, I throw him a fastball or supposed to be, and he pops it up and, um, the catcher goes, Oh, I say, I think as my I should know this, right? I only had one line. I said, uh, I said, Oh, is that a home run? And he says, yeah, maybe in a silo or something like that. Like it was an infield pop-up. It was kind of a, a cheesy line. Um, but yeah, that was, that was my one and only. Um, but it was fun, man. It was a really cool experience to see how everything works. Um, and like, like I said, I ended up being in the movie a lot longer than I, than I realized I was going to be. But I think I, I, I'm pretty sure I told Sweeney's this story. So I was the only guy in the big leagues that was in this, that was on the cast. All the guys were mm-hmm. a couple of minor leaguers, uh, mostly college kids because it was the middle of summer. So there were no active players that they could have in this movie. And so they asked me to throw batting practice to Chadwick Boseman one day. And obviously, you know, he's an actor and God rest his soul. He's gone on to done, do some pretty incredible things since then. Um, but, you know, he wasn't a baseball player. And so I'm throwing him BP at East Cop, East Cop facility in Georgia. And between every single pitch, he's doing his whole, like what Jackie Robinson did when he stepped in the box. Like this wasn't batting practice where you're just like throwing a BP and he's working on hitting. Like he's working on acting while I'm throwing him BP. And so I'm, I'm, I throw a couple to him and I'm lobbing it in there. And he's like, Hey, can you, can you slow it down a little bit? And can you give me a little bit more time in between pitches, which only makes batting (laughs) practice that much harder to throw. Like it's hard to throw if you can't keep a rhythm and it's really hard to throw when you have to throw slow. And I'm like, all right, you know, and so then he gets back in there and I'm trying, I still had a torn rotator cuff and I'm trying to kind of throw nice and easy. Now I'm up to maybe 30 miles an hour. And so I throw one, it comes out of my hand. And because I had a, sh- a, a tight shoulder, I cut one. Like I could feel it. Like it cut right out of my hand. And I know it's going toward him. And in what seemed like the slowest moment of my life, I'm watching this ball go right toward him. Again, like 30 miles an hour. I'm like, all right, well, it's slow. He's going to get out of the way. Okay, he's going to move. Heads up, that ball's coming right at you. And he's not moving at all. And boom, <laughs> it hits him right in the knee. And then he hits the ground as if I drilled him with like a 90 mile an hour fastball. And I'm like, come on, are you serious right now? Like that just happened. Like he couldn't move. One of the actors that was playing third base came over to me and goes, Oh dude, you're getting fired. I said, what? Cause you just hit the star of the movie. You're getting fired. You're not going to be here anymore. I'm like, are you serious? So luckily they didn't fire me. Um, so that is my, that's probably my bigger claim to fame is that I drilled Chadwick Boseman with a 30 mile an hour fastball in the knee. I think people don't realize that uh, most pitchers that have thrown the ball so many times don't like throwing batting practice. Nope. It's not something that is is fun to do. Uh, no. Did they keep you away from Harrison Ford or, or did you get to meet him as well? So I walked by him once, right? So here I am, a kid that waited online to watch a couple of the early Star Wars movies in the late 70s and early 80s, right? At the old Lafayette Theater in Suffern, New York, where I grew up. So I, this was a big deal to me, right? And uh, zero eye contact. It, wouldn't, it didn't even look at me when I walked by him. 
you know, just nothing. I realized I'm like, all right, this is legit. This is like, I guess, you know, I don't know, a clubhouse kid um, having an opportunity to, you know, to clean Roger Clemens' shoes or something. I don't know. It just, it wasn't, we were not on the same level that I thought we might've been since we were both actors in the movie. Quote, unquote. <laughs> did you give any thought to staying in that game or did you go, you know what? I've done my time in the acting world. I've mastered all the world of Brad Pitt. I'm going to go on no. to broadcasting baseball again. <laughs> it was only, only the idea of the competition is what got me of like really trying to get it. But I know that it's that it's not my gig. And then I got I was fortunate enough to, to get a couple of cameos on pitch. Uh, the Fox series that lasted about. Um, I guess about 10 episodes, unfortunately, before it had gotten canceled. Yeah. Uh, that was a fun one for me because I also got to be a script consultant on that. Uh, which was like the best gig I've ever had in my life. Like that seems like a really good job to have. I made some pretty decent money for only being a script consultant where all that meant was uh, the writers and the producers had access to call you, email you, ask you about ideas and whether or not they made sense. And would that actually make the baseball part of what they're doing and what they're writing uh, feel real? I was really hoping they were going to have some kind of uh, you know, long run of about eight or nine seasons because I might've been able to retire. You're the one guy <laughs> I know who actually wants to pick up the phone now. The rest of us yeah. let everything well, go to voicemail. You never know who's on the other end for you. Those are paid calls for sure. Yeah, but mostly, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> well, take us into the uh, the current incarnation of C.J. Nitkowski, then into the broadcast booth. We know you do some work with uh, MLB Radio. Folks can catch you there. Also MLB Network, uh, as well as Fox, and of course with the Texas Rangers currently. So you got a lot of balls in, in the air. Um, what got you into that line of work? What uh, was the trigger for you deciding you wanted to be a broadcaster? So I've always, like most of us, loved watching baseball on television, listening to baseball on the radio as a kid. It's how I went to bed every night. Phil Rizzuto, Bill White, whoever was calling Yankee games back then uh, was how I fell asleep. And so I always enjoyed the industry and, and listening and, and, and kind of thought hey, that'd be cool. But while I was playing, I really didn't think about it. And it wasn't until 1999 uh, when I was in Detroit. Uh, Bob Valvano, who had a show at the time on ESPN, happened to be in the old Detroit clubhouse. And he asked me kind of randomly, we we're having a conversation. He said, hey, would you be interested in coming uh, on my radio show and doing some postseason analysis? And he would always say, in case you guys don't make it, which those years in Detroit, that wasn't even on our radar. Like it was, it was a no brainer. I think it was just being nice. Like he knew we weren't going to make it. Um, and he's like, if you're around the postseason. And so I'd done it with him. Uh, that was the first time that I went on as somebody's kind of analyst. And I did it for three years with him. And I loved it. And I was like, oh, this is really fun. And that's when I started kind of getting interested and wondering, oh, is this something that I actually could do after the fact? Uh, and I continued to take any kind of gigs like that that I could to go on and be guests and not necessarily talk about you or your team, but just talk about the game in general. Uh, when I played for the Yankees in 2004, uh, I offered my services uh, to WFAN in New York. I was like, hey, if anybody, you know, I've done this before for ESPN Radio, if you want an analyst or need an analyst, I'd be more than happy to help. And so I went on with Steve Summers, who was a favorite of mine growing up uh, and, and did that part of it. Uh, I wrote a bunch. Uh, it was not one of my favorite things to say, but one of the first players to ever have a website. <laughs> so uh, there was, I was always kind of writing to uh, throughout my career. And so I knew that I wanted to do it. Um, it was just a matter of like, how do you really get in? And I got very lucky because at the end of my career, uh, MLB.com was still doing uh, television work essentially are doing, you know, there were internet videos and they have they had really great studios in New York city. And I had somebody that I wrote for actually recommend me to them. Uh, and I went in and I started doing some stuff with MLB.com my first year. 
I, I needed an agent. I think most guys do. Um, and so my agent got me some opportunities at radio, uh, started doing some stuff for CBS sports radio, started doing college games, which I tell people all the time who ask about it. Like, listen, if you're John Smoltz and all these other big names, you don't have to do college baseball games, but for the rest of us, uh, we do have to find other gigs to do to start to build up a resume. So much like my first full year in baseball, that was a crazy one. My first full year in broadcasting was MLB.com, uh, Again, doing a bunch of the short videos, doing some radio for CBS, doing college games uh, for CBS Sports. I filled in for Susan Waldman on uh, three Yankee games with John Sterling. Like that was my first big league game was on radio with John Sterling in my first year of broadcasting. Wow. Like I just was like right place, right time with a lot of this stuff. Cool. And so it was all those different things. Um you know, and trying to figure out what are you good at? What can you do that? That really, um, I was, again, was so fortunate to be able to do all those things my first year. CJ, it's interesting because, uh, you say first game with John Sterling, uh, mine's Dick Enberg, uh, right to my right. <laughs> <That's amazing. laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, where do you go from here? Right. Uh-huh. I mean, it, it's, it's the super fan in you, but oh, yeah. also realizing, uh, man, this is a daunting task because I don't want to mess this up. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what amazes <laughs> me about you too, and your broadcasting, uh, because we've been able to work together at FS1 and Fox and, and, uh, doing a studio show, um, which is the MLB whip around your versatility to me, uh, makes you stick out. And I think you had to go that direction. Uh, but what forced you into, Hey man, I can do play by play. I can do studio work. I can do color analyst. I think that is an aspect that is very difficult to do, but you've met those challenges. I think the idea of just making sure you have something else you can do in case you lose one of your other jobs, you know, (laughs) quite honestly, because I'm looking, I joke around. I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but I have to have one of the lowest wars of any broadcaster in the game. I'm I'm pretty sure it's got to be bottom two or three at least. And so knowing (laughs) that people are like, oh, wow, we can get CJ Nikowski to come do our analysis. Isn't that exciting? No, you better be really good at what you're doing. And if you're not good at that, maybe it needs to be, um, something else. So we were lucky, right? That first year at FS1, <clears throat> I went to the auditions uh, in January of 2000, and I guess that was 14, uh, and knowing that they had a lot of work available. But what was interesting, man, I went to the first like meetings that you and I, all three of us have been at at Terranea, and John Entz was introducing the new guys that were joining FS1, and I was one of them. Mm-hmm. And so he says, oh, you know, CJ Nikowski is going to do Whip Around Studio, and he's going to do some games for us. That was news to me when he said that. And I was like, I am? Like I had no idea because if you remember, that's when FS1 started taking on the weekend games and they thought that they could just elevate those. Mm-hmm. Like they thought they could take the local broadcast and just put it on nationally. And it wasn't until right before the season started, they learned they couldn't do that, that they actually had to have their own broadcast. So I happened to sign on to do studio when they're like, oh no, we need people to do games. And that was like a big like rush, like real quick, hey, can you go do some games without being originally part of the idea that they had had for me? So I was, I was grateful to get that opportunity early on uh, to do some of those national games with FS1. And I, I just, I don't know, I, I also like the idea of trying some different things. And then if you're not good at it, and hopefully you can get honest feedback, right? If someone's like, eh, your play-by-play is not going to cut it. Like, I'm okay with that. Just let me know. Uh, but I at least wanted to try it. I begged them for a while to let me do play-by-play. And they, it was kind of like, ah, we'll see, we'll see. I said, give me your worst game. Like, I think it was like 2015. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the Diamondbacks and the Padres. I did my first game right there in San Diego. And I, <laughs> I like a Monday with Keros, which was great, yep. which was so great. We love Keros, right? We, you and I, we all do. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was really fun to be able to do the first one um, with EK. And then on the radio side, I got forced into like hosting shows once in a while. And that probably, I don't know if anything gave me more anxiety than doing that. 
Because as the mm-hmm. analyst, we can just sit there and people can ask us questions and throw us stuff and we can go with it. But when you got to drive the show, especially on the radio side, you got to be prepared. <laughs> you, yeah. you better be ready and done your homework. And it's the same thing in play-by-play. So I'm grateful to, to be able to do multiple uh, jobs in this industry. And uh, I, I love what we do. Well, your preparation takes you to the Texas Rangers opportunity as an analyst and uh, uh, do fabulous work. We're always connected because any time that I see a Rangers game and you're and you're doing it, um, it's it's what you get used to. And, and I love uh, hearing your takes because you mesh uh, analytics, uh, your experience as uh, going through your baseball career. I think that adds an element that I think is is really unique, which is really great. Uh, to me, what's next for you? Uh, because uh, it's easy to say, you know what, I'm just going to go along and, and do this. I it, I don't think you have that mentality. What do you really want to get um, out of your career moving forward? I got to tell you, I'm, I'm pretty happy with where I am. I mean, you always have to be prepared for things to change that they happen, obviously. Um, but if I could do this one for a while with the Rangers, I would take it because first of all, I love doing it. It's a great organization. But that's the other thing too, is there are certain teams there, there have been, I want to say that there was opportunities where teams had asked me to do jobs, but I had been involved in maybe some potential jobs and uh, ended up not working out or I wasn't interested. Uh, but then when you find the right organization, the right people to work with, uh, I think that you should, shouldn't give that up unless there's something bigger and better out there. But even then there's something to be said for trusting the people that you work with and work for. Uh, that's the Texas Rangers. I'll give you just a super small example. I ended up getting COVID in September. I had to miss like my last couple of games. I was fine. It wasn't bad, but I couldn't work the last week. John Daniels called me like every day or texted me every day to check in. I was doing like the general manager of the Texas Rangers is asking me how I'm doing, why I'm sitting in quarantine, right? It just speaks to the character uh, of the organization. And so it's to me, when you have something like that, you hold on to it as long as you can, because as you guys well know, it's just some people in this business you can't trust. And so there's something about having people that are honest um, and there is a family atmosphere there in Texas. So if I could do this one for a while, I'd be, I'd be perfectly fine with it. Um, you know, we, it was weird cause I did the opposite. A lot of people probably aspire to work their way to national. I was fortunate to start national and then end up in local. And, and you know this, cause I told you before, but I had a year left on my contract with FS1 when the Rangers opportunity came up and I asked them if I could walk away from my national contract to take a local one. And most people mm-hmm. would think you go the other way. Why would you do that? But that's because I, I, I recognized and really felt like this was a place that I would want to be. And this could be a place where I could be long-term. That was the draw, right? And, and be trying to become a voice. Like it's Tom Grieve right now for sure. And it should be. Mm-hmm. And it's Eric Nadell on the radio side. Whenever Tom decides that, you know, he wants to step aside, if you can do what he did. I mean, gosh, he's done it for, I think, 26, 27 years. Um, I would be perfectly fine if somehow it could become... I don't want to say him because that's not fair to him, but become that that voice that's recognizable with one team. Uh, I'd be okay with that if that's available. Well, I got to tell you, you've been a ton of fun to listen to on their broadcast and also nationally for folks who haven't had a chance to uh, experience all the knowledge that you have. I uh, hope that will give you a listen, not only on the Texas Rangers broadcast, also uh, on the radio side, uh, MLB Network Radio. You can catch him there. Maybe jump in on another national game, but you <laughs> offer a ton of insight. And my friend, it has been a wonderful ride and it's been a wonderful time spending this with you. And we do appreciate you joining us here on the podcast. I appreciate it, Mike. And I will tell you this. I, so I watched your last one. Uh, with Kershaw. I was like, oh yeah, of course, I should be next, right? I remember thinking, let's go Kershaw, one of the great left. Oh, Nikowski, let's go there next. <laughs> only, the, only the biggest and the best names for our guests, CJ. That's how we roll. That's how we roll. And you know what? You're the only guest we've had uh, who has been blown off by Harrison Ford and being the star of a movie. Yeah. So 
Got that going for me. Yeah, as far as we're concerned, <laughs> Which is you're nice. a big deal. Uh, <laughs> it's nice. Something on the resume. Folks, thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.